If you do have a Bible, I would encourage that you take it out. We are going to be all over the place this morning. And I am going to do my best. Last week, I only preached for about 28 minutes. So if I go a little over today, I'm asking for some grace because we're covering a lot of ground, like a lot of ground. So a couple things. We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer But we're going to be looking at how the Lord's Prayer not only shapes our prayer lives, but shapes the way we ought to be living. As I said last week, it's a picture of who Jesus is, which means it's a picture of the gospel. That's what the Lord's Prayer is. But with all that, let's let's jump in here. So when I first became a dad, I was told that I would never experience a good night's sleep again. So I was told Now, 10 years in, and truer words have never been spoken. That's because the ears of a mother or father are always inclined toward the voice of their children. The ears of a mother and father are always inclined toward the voice of their children. So much so, and this is weird, that you can distinguish between the cry of your own child and that of a stranger's. Which before I had kids, I didn't get that because all babies sounded the same to me. They just sounded annoying, right? Like that, like let's be honest, before you have kids, the cry of it, honestly, after you have kids, it's annoying too because it's it's kind of like stirs up all these weird things in you. But anyway, as a kid, I was a sound sleeper. You could you couldn't wake me up even if you paraded a marching band through my room. But at this point in my life, Even the slightest whimper coming from my kids' rooms will wake me up. Why? Because regardless of how tired I am or how long I've been sleeping for, you don't get to clock out as a parent. It's just not an option. And so this morning, as we jump into the text of the Lord's Prayer, we're going to talk about the fatherhood of God. Now, as we get into this discussion, I want to acknowledge that the concept of father is not something that is always received with joy. There are some in this room who might have difficult histories with their fathers. These, maybe your father left or maybe he was abusive. And and these experiences often make it difficult to relate to God as father. But the beauty of the gospel beauty of the gospel is that it redeems. The gospel redeems. It doesn't necessarily remove the pain that we've experienced, but it does offer something new. I want us to remember Job. Job, at the end of his story, if you've ever read that book in the Old Testament, he was restored, but even though he was restored, it didn't change the fact that he had still lost so much. I imagine Job at the end of the life, at the end of his life, as he looked around all that he had, he didn't forget those kids that had passed away. Because here's the thing, right? Even Jesus took his scars into eternity. And so we also walk through our lives broken and battered by what we've experienced. But the promise of the gospel is that we are now adopted into a new family. You get that? We are adopted into a new family which stretches across time, space, class, and whatever other barrier we might be placing upon others. And and we serve a God 
who while being beyond comprehension, possessing all authority, is still near enough to hear us, and we can call him dad. That's where we're heading this morning. And so in that first point on the right side of your bulletin that you received when you came in, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, we're going to spend the bulk of our time there this morning. So the Greek text begins with the word Father, and Luke's version doesn't even have the word our in it, so that's where we're going to start. And so in this discussion about the nature of God as Father, it's important that we begin from the beginning. So in James 1.17, it says God is referred to as the Father of light, or in other words, the Father of creation. So in Genesis 1, we see that God spoke forth creation. Everything that, that is originated in him. He is the first cause. But that's not really what we're dealing with when we talk about God being our father. See, the fatherhood of God stretches back to his covenantal relationship with Israel. We're going to flip to Exodus chapter 4, and I have a slide up for that. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, it reads as follows. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, listen here, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Like, whoa. Couple things, right? The Lord, or Yahweh, identifies Israel as his firstborn son. And the Lord is coming to the defense of his firstborn son. If you have children, this might resonate a little bit in you. I might have told this story in the past, but, but I think it was a year ago, Halloween, we were in my in-law's neighborhood, and we're walking around, we're trick-or-treating, and, and there's this car that flies through the neighborhood. Now, there's kids everywhere. What are you doing? Well, I had the same question. And so I proceeded to walk into the middle of the road, yelling at the top of my lungs, who do you think you are driving through the neighborhood like this? yelling so much so that the car stopped and I just kept walking because you don't mess with my kids you don't mess with my kids now nothing happened praise the Lord but I think many of us have experienced maybe not my actions but that feeling you don't mess with my children and that's what God is doing here as he relates to his firstborn, the apple of his eye, Israel, he says, Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him I'm not playing around. Let my kids go. It's the heart of a father. In Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 18, we see the song of Moses, and I'll read that. A lot of text this morning. It says this, 1 through 18, 32. Lost my spot. Here it is. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain. May my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass. 
Awesome spot. And like the showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without, without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked in a twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. See, Moses warns the people of Israel as he's passing the torch on to Joshua. He warns the people of Israel. He recounts their history. He identifies himself as their father and they as his covenant people. But as it says in verse 18, it says, You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. See, Israel forgot the God who gave them birth. The point is, is that Israel was the firstborn child of God, chosen from among the nations to show the world what God was like. And they failed. And they failed. Oh, but, but God is faithful. See, he promises in verse 34 of that same song to avenge the blood of his children. But the vindication that came, came in a way that was unexpected. Let's flip to the New Testament, Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. This is after uh, Jesus' family is visited by the wise men. They give him kind of a warning. They say things are, things are a little different, and then, then there's a vision that is had. And, and here we have in verse 13, and, and i got to probably read that through because I probably explained that all wrong. But anyway, here it says, Now when they had departed to go to Egypt to kind of escape any sort of persecution that they might have been experiencing, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Why? Because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Out of Egypt I have called my son. See, Matthew intentionally draws his reader's attention to the prophet Hosea in chapter 11, verse 1, who was speaking about the nation of Israel, and then he maps the story of Israel onto the person of Jesus because Jesus, as we see throughout the Gospel of Matthew, is the true Israel, which is where the church's union with Christ comes in. As we bend our knee to King Jesus, we are then adopted into this new family of God, meaning we become co-heirs with Christ. We become co-heirs with Christ. Do we understand what co-heirs means? That means all the stuff Jesus gets from the Father, he gives to us as well. Oh my goodness. Like, that should blow our minds. See, the point is that the promises of God 
find their fulfillment in the person and work of King Jesus. And these promises are then mapped onto the rest of the family of God. Let me show you how this works. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Let's take a look. Like I said, we're all over the place today, so you got to bear with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, it says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, listen to it, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, what? What does it say? Children of God. And if children... He foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many what? Brothers. So spirit-led people are children of God. Spirit-led people are led out of the wilderness and away from Egypt and slavery, not toward it. Spirit-led people are granted access to God in the most intimate of ways, crying out what? Abba, Father. And that word cry out literally means like crying out, like, 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 Dad, help me. Help me. And while Abba doesn't necessarily, it's not a band from the 70s, but while Abba does not necessarily mean Daddy as some have taught, it does imply intimacy and nearness. A heartfelt, Dad, I really need your help right now. I really need your help right now. Spirit-led people have God as our father because Jesus is our older brother. Do we see the connection here? You see what's happening here. St. Augustine says it like this. Without any distinction among ourselves, and I have this up on the screen, we all say, our Father. Such goodness. The emperor says it, and so does the beggar. The slaves say that, and so does his master. All say jointly, our Father who art in heaven. By this they declare that they are siblings, for they have a common Father. They have a common Father. There's a parallel passage in Galatians chapter 4. I told you, lots of Bible today. And I want to read that to you really quick, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, because you are children of God, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then an heir through God. And so, so there's a, a distinct 
sort of difference between what's happening in Romans chapter 8 and what's happening in Galatians chapter 4. One distinction between these two verses is that in Romans, we are crying out, Abba, Father, the people of God. And in Galatians, it's the Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. Right? So who is it? Well, Sinclair Ferguson, theologian, says it like this. The cry... Abba, Father, is seen by Paul as expressing the coordinated witness of the believer and the spirit. In other words, there's one cry, but that cry has two sources, the consciousness of the believer and the ministry of the spirit. See, there's a sharing or a participation that takes place. There's one cry coming from two sources. One cry coming from two sources. Imagine yourself at a ball game and you hear the roar of the crowd, singular. That roar is made up by a multitude of voices. When we cry out to God, when we cry out to our Father, we are actually participating in thy kingdom come. Why? Because the Spirit of God cries out with us. We're working in coordination with the Holy Spirit of God when we cry out to the Father. That's how in step he calls us to be. Oh, what do we get? What do we get? Man, we get God. So when we pray our Father in heaven, what we are telling the world is that we have God and we are his kids by the ministry of Jesus who died on the cross, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, who then poured out his spirit on the church. We get God. We get God. Oh, this is good news, Redeemer Fellowship. This is good news. I, I mean... Do you see what's happening here? This adoption that we have, being members of the family of God, the household of faith. Few caveats so we don't kind of run off the rails here is that our sonship is not the same as Jesus' sonship. In that he is the second person of the Trinity the only begotten of the Father. See, our sharing in the life of Christ does not blur the lines of the creator-creature distinction. That's just an important caveat to keep in our heads. We don't become God. That's not what happens. Oh, but we start to resemble him, right? And the longer we walk with Jesus, Lord willing, the more we begin to resemble him. And, and I say that not so, like, yes, of course, individually speaking, but the church, as we walk together and keep in step with the Spirit, this people of God will reflect more vividly and more clearly the image of their Father. We talked about this last week. We started out last year talking about unity and how important that was. And I can say, and I said it last week, that as we closed out the ministry year and as we begin a new one, this people here in Tom's River, New Jersey, Redeemer Fellowship, is more unified than they were a year ago, which means that we more clearly and vividly show the world what God is like as a result. See, that's what it's about. Yes, individually, we're all working out our salvations with fear and trembling. But we work out our salvation with fear and trembling so that we can build up the body. And the body is beginning to look more and more like Jesus. Second thing, caveat, is that the fatherhood of God does not imply that he is biologically male. 
just an important thing for us to recognize. God is spirit. He is not biologically male. It's a very important thing to understand because I think also that might mix some, some, some confusing elements into our understanding of God as Father. He's not a boy. He is spirit. He is God. He is our Father in heaven. And to move on, while we can approach God as sons and daughters, that we are able to enter his room at all hours of the night with every struggle and burden we might be carrying. We must never forget that he is our father who is in heaven, who is in heaven. See, see point two is he is still God. He is still God. What do I mean? Well, Isaiah chapter 6 points this out pretty well, and I can get there for us. It says this, verses 1 through 7. I think I got a slide as well. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And, and Pete, I'm not going to steal too much of your thunder. Upon seeing the Lord, the only thing Isaiah could say is, woe is me. Maybe another way of understanding is, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. This is, this is too much. This is too big. See, Moses didn't quite get it. He had to be reminded, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. And then the New Testament paints an even clearer picture. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. What that's called in, in, in theological circles is doxology. Doxology means worship. See, we approach God as Father. There's an intimacy when we enter into prayer, but at the same time, there's a reverence recognizing that God is God. I mean, as a dad, right, my kids, my kids have access to me whenever they want. But you ever notice that sometimes kids get a little too familiar, and they might say something or do something that's like, whoa, 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 time out. I'm still your dad. I'm still your dad. I'm not your buddy on the bus. And that's kind of what's going on here, only to a much larger extent. Our heavenly father's like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm dad. I'm Abba Father. But let's not forget that I reside in heaven, ruling over all of creation, the sovereign of the universe. Like, let's not get those things mixed up. The point 
when we approach God in prayer and honestly, as we simply live our lives, while we can have confidence that he is our loving father, stooped down on bended knee to hear the voice of his children, he is also king of kings, lord of lords, the sovereign over all of creation. The God to whom we pray is the God of heaven, and from heaven he rules over all of creation. You know what this should do to us? This should inspire and spur on worship, that we throw our hands up in the air and we cry out, God, you are good, you are holy, you are all in all. And Pete, next week, is going to talk about hallowed be thy name. And specifically, how does the holiness of God shape the life of the church? Be holy as I am holy, the scriptures say. And I'm going to stop there because Pete's getting nervous that I'm going to preach his sermon next week. But we worship God because he is holy. He is good. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. He is our dad. We can go to him at all hours of the night, day, whenever. We pray without ceasing, as the scriptures call us to do, but we must never forget that we're dealing with Almighty God, for this is holy ground. Take your shoes off. That's a big deal. And this brings us to our final point this morning. I think I'm actually doing pretty good on time. Brian's my timekeeper, though, I think, right? How am I doing? Good. So moving along, what I think is really important for us to recognize as we pray, and as we think of the instructions that Jesus gave us when we pray, this is point number three, killing the hostility. See, Jesus did not teach the disciples to pray, my Father. We don't ask for my daily bread. We don't pray for my forgiveness, and we don't ask that God would lead me not into temptation. See, what the Lord's prayer does to our prayer lives and to our lives in general is that it shifts our gaze away from ourselves and directs it towards God and the family into which we've been adopted. It takes our gaze and it shifts it away from ourselves towards God and the family into which we've been adopted. Why is this important? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 gives us a little bit of a clue as to why this is a big deal. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and I believe I have a slide for that as well. It says this in Ephesians chapter 2. When we preached on this, this was actually the last sermon I preached before we went into lockdown, which is so interesting to me. I, I realized that this morning. Anyway, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, remember, we need to take notice of these words, these transition words, these conjunctions. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, 
one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Check this out. This is where it gets really good. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of what? The household of God. In other words, the family of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so a couple of things. There was a time when there was a distinction between Israel and the other ethnic groups of the world, when Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There was a time when Gentiles were considered foreigners and aliens. And then verse 13, but now something has changed. Look at what happened. See, Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but, and a strong adversative in the Greek, you are all fellow citizens with the saints and members of the family of God. Remember that family. That family that was established back when God called Abraham. That family that the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies went toe to toe with Pharaoh for. The family who was whittled down to a remnant of one. The firstborn of all creation. Guess what? We're part of that family. We're part of that family. And that family stretches across time, space, class, ethnicity, race, and any other societal barrier that has been built up by a sin-engulfed humanity. What's the point? When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are praying with and on behalf of every brother and sister, regardless of who they are or where they come from. See, this prayer levels the playing field in the same way the communion table levels the playing field. And so to quote St. Augustine again, all say jointly, our Father who art in heaven, and I think I have a slide for this second quote, by this they declare that they are siblings, for they have a common father. And here I added this to this second quote. Therefore, let not a master scorn having his slave as a brother, a slave whom the Lord Christ has taken as his brother. Woe to anyone who bears the name of Christ, yet places themselves above a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And woe to anyone who bows their head to pray this prayer with any sort of superiority in their hearts. In the words of our Lord from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house, his house justified rather than the other. And here's the point. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When we pray our Father, we are not playing around. Yes, oh, there is an intimacy that we have with God. It's beautiful. It is the best thing. It's the best thing that our Father in heaven hears our voice, individually and corporately. We can enter into our times of prayer confidently knowing that our words don't just bounce off the ceiling and come back down. No, no, no. Our Father in heaven hears us. Oh, but we must remember that while he hears us and he wants to hear from us, we must remember that he is almighty God. And as we enter into prayer and as we live our lives as Christians, as the church, we must never forget that the church does not stop at these doors, but rather it extends across space, time, and every other societal barrier that we have placed upon ourselves. God breaks down barriers. He breaks down the dividing walls of hostility. Why? So that we might show the world something different, something beautiful, something good, that we might show them God. And God is not a God who shows favoritism. He shows no partiality, yet we show so much of it. And God's saying, no, 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 that's not me. You're not bearing the family resemblance anymore. And so, as we close, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. And my hope is that we might walk away both encouraged and challenged. Encouraged that the God who is sovereign and all-powerful, who holds creation in his breath, is also the same God who has adopted us into his family through the person and work of Christ, to whom we cry out together with the Spirit, Abba, he listens and he listens and challenged that if we claim God as father then we must also claim the rest of his kids as brothers and sisters regardless of where they hail from the size of their bank accounts the color of their skin their position on vaccines and masks or the political party with whom they are affiliated to cultivate a spirit of prayer and communion with God means that we will continue striving after unity. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are participating in thy kingdom come because we are living out the good news of Jesus in loving union with God and reconciling grace toward one another. The good news of King Jesus as I've said in the past, has both vertical and horizontal implications, and the Lord's Prayer is in no way shy about letting us know this truth. This is our God. This is our 
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for the goodness of the gospel, the glory of your son Jesus, the beauty and wonder of the church, the fact that you have opened up the gate of heaven so that our Father might hear our voice. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, Father, I pray that we would participate in this supper, knowing full well that we are participating with the church universal, Lord God, as you nourish our souls through this this sacrament, Lord God. You are also nourishing the souls of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, Lord God. Oh, Father, thank you for this grace. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and for the spirit through whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.